Have you ever had a pounding headache that wouldn't go away? But your medicine cabinet is stocked with Tylenol, so you pop two pills and hope they work fast. And why wouldn't it? After all, it's a common over-the-counter medication, perfectly safe. But that wasn't always the case. In the early 80s, some madman turned ordinary bottles of Tylenol into lethal weapons. It was one of the most horrifying mass murders you've probably never even heard of. And no one has ever been caught and convicted for it. I guarantee you'll never look at your medicine cabinet the same way again. Hi, I'm Chris. Thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. Our story starts in Elk Grove Village, a suburb outside of Chicago, on an early Wednesday morning in September 1982. Dennis Kellerman was getting ready for work when he heard a crash in the bathroom. His 12-year-old daughter Mary had just gone in there after saying she didn't feel well. He rushed to the bathroom door and asked her if she was all right, but there was no answer. And when he forced the door open, he found Mary on the floor, unconscious, still in her pajamas. She died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Investigators had no idea what happened. Neither did her father. All he knew was that Mary was staying home sick from school that day, and she took a dose of Tylenol Extra Strength to help her feel better. Her sudden death seemed like a freak accident, not homicide. That is, until other Chicago residents started dying under oddly similar circumstances. On that same day in another Chicago suburb, about 15 minutes away, 27-year-old postal worker Adam Janice was also feeling poorly that day. So he called in sick to work, and later that afternoon he picked up his daughter from school, and on the way he bought a bottle of Tylenol from a local pharmacy. When Adam and his daughter got home, they ate lunch, and when he was finished eating, he told her he was going to take a couple of Tylenol and lie down for a while. Around two minutes later, he stumbled into the kitchen and fell to the floor. At 3.15, a little over five hours after Mary Kellerman's mysterious death, Adam was clinging to life at the Northwest Community Hospital, where doctors in the ICU did everything they could to revive him. But his heart was failing. They tried to resuscitate, but couldn't stop his cardiac system from shutting down. He was pronounced dead that afternoon. Adam's family visited the hospital that day, grieving their loss and looking for answers. Unfortunately, the doctor couldn't give them any. Frankly, he was baffled. He had no idea what could have caused a healthy 27-year-old man to die so suddenly. Without any answers to soothe their pain, the family left the hospital and gathered at Adam's home to grieve and plan his funeral. Meanwhile, a few miles away in West Chicago, a 27-year-old mother of four, Mary Reiner, popped a couple of Tylenols after complaining of post-labor pains. She collapsed and died two hours later. At this point, no one suspected any foul play, nor did they see any connection between these mysterious deaths. That all changed when two more members of the Janus family came back to the hospital with the same symptoms Adam had before he died. Adam's little brother Stanley suffered from chronic back pain. He and his wife Teresa were at his brother's house with the rest of their family mourning and planning Adam's funeral when his back started acting up. And he asked Teresa to get him some Tylenol out of his older brother's medicine cabinet. While the bottle was open, Teresa grabbed two pills for herself. The doctor who tried to save Adam's life, Dr. Kim, says he was putting on his blazer to head out for the day when the nurse told him that Stanley and Teresa were in the hospital receiving CPR. 
Dr. Kim took off his blazer and rushed to find Adam's brother and sister-in-law, realizing for the first time that something strange was happening. Enter Helen Jensen. The medical examiner's office requested a public health expert to see what was happening at the hospital after three supposedly healthy members from the same family died the same day. Helen was the one who answered the call. She asked around, but no one seemed to know what was happening. Nothing seemed unusual. Three hours later, Helen was at the Janice house to take a look around. She started her search in the family's medicine cabinet, but she didn't find anything out of the ordinary, just standard over-the-counter medications and prescription drugs. But her mental light bulb switched on after opening the bottle of Tylenol. She realized that six pills were missing, each set of two ingested by three dead family members. It couldn't be a coincidence, so Helen grabbed the bottle and drove back to the hospital. While Helen and the investigators were putting two and two together, more people were dying. Around 6.30 that night, 31-year-old Mary McFarland was suffering from the same symptoms as the previous victims. She was working a shift at the Illinois Bell Store in Lombard, less than an hour outside of Chicago, when she started complaining about a headache. She ducked into the back room to pop a couple of Tylenols, and a few minutes later, she dropped to the floor dead. Meanwhile, back in Arlington Heights, Helen brought the Janice family's bottle of Tylenol to the hospital, trying to convince investigators that the pain-relieving pills were somehow responsible for the mysterious deaths. The idea seemed preposterous to them. Tylenol is a relatively harmless pain reliever that doesn't cause many symptoms or severe side effects when taken at the recommended dose. In other words, Helen's theory didn't match Tylenol's docile reputation. Dr. Kim paced around his office trying to figure out what had happened to his patients, but the only answer he could come up with was cyanide poisoning, which seemed far-fetched. Nevertheless, he followed his gut, collected a blood sample from the three Janus victims, and sent it to a lab for poison testing. The test results came back at 1 in the morning on September 30th, showing the lethal contaminant was indeed cyanide, confirming his suspicions. The results said the dose of cyanide was 100 times more than the necessary amount needed to kill a person. According to the CDC, cyanide is a potent chemical that can exist in many forms. It can be a gas, powder, even liquid. And believe it or not, you've probably eaten cyanide before. The toxic chemical is commonly found in lima beans, pits, and seeds of fruits like apples and peaches. Cyanide is most famously found in one of the most consumed snacks in the world, almonds. The poisonous chemical is also used in everyday products like cigarettes, plastics, and other synthetic materials. However, these things only contain low concentrations of cyanide. For example, you'd need to eat over 1,000 sweet almonds to die from cyanide poisoning. Highly concentrated cyanide, however, is commonly used as a deadly poison. Cyanide kills its victims by robbing red blood cells of their ability to use oxygen. In other words, you can inhale all the air you want to, but you won't be able to oxygenate your body. Obviously, it's a seriously potent substance in the wrong hands. But it's got one distinguishing tell. It smells slightly like almonds. And Dr. Kim, Helen, and Chicago investigators eventually came to the same conclusion. 
someone had laced Tylenol pills with enough cyanide to kill a person a hundred times over. And there were poisoned bottles in pharmacies all over the greater Chicago area. The problem was that they didn't get to that conclusion overnight. It took a little less than a week to figure it out. And when they did, the news rocked the entire region. Poison control hotlines lit up like a Christmas tree, and doctors were flooded with patients worried about being poisoned. Stores frantically cleared their shelves of all Tylenol products. Johnson & Johnson, the manufacturer of Tylenol, issued a national recall alert for all bottles of extra strength. And on October 5th, they expanded the recall to include all Tylenol products, which added up to more than 30 million bottles. It cost them more than $100 million, but it was money well spent. In subsequent months, 10 million recalled pills were popped open and tested. And of those 10 million pills, 50 were dosed with cyanide. But despite their best efforts, there was one more victim. On October 1st at 5 p.m., investigators found 35-year-old Paula Jean Prince's body on the bathroom floor in her apartment. Paula was a flight attendant who had just landed at the Chicago airport after flying from Las Vegas. She felt like she was coming down with a cold, so after she left the airport, she swung by a Walgreens pharmacy and bought a bottle of Tylenol, four days before the recall went into effect. From the pharmacy, Paula went home and was never heard from again. Police found her after a friend called to say she never showed up to a dinner date that night. Now that all the Tylenol had been pulled off the shelves of America's pharmacies, investigators moved on to the next step, finding the killer. The superintendent of the Chicago Police Department recalled watching the security footage of Paula Prince buying her bottle of Tylenol at Walgreens. It was a haunting image, knowing she was picking out her own murder weapon. But the most frustrating thing was what they couldn't see. There were no cameras filming the aisle where she grabbed her bottle of pills, meaning investigators had no way of knowing who put them there. They ruled out the manufacturing plants early on. The poisoned bottles came from different factories, so one person couldn't have poisoned all the pills which narrowed their search to the pharmacies that stocked the poisoned Tylenol on their shelves. But none of the pharmacies recorded anyone walking in and putting Tylenol bottles on the shelves. That meant investigators would have to solve the case without video evidence or witnesses. There were a lot of leads, but most of them weren't very useful. They fielded thousands of calls from people either claiming to know the killer or claiming to be the killer. But the best lead came from Johnson & Johnson. They handed over an extortion letter from someone claiming to be the killer. The author was a man named James Lewis. At the time, James was an unemployed accountant living in New York City. He and his wife originally hailed from Kansas City, and then they made their way to Chicago for a short, tumultuous time before setting out for New York under fake names. Authorities tracked him down after analyzing the thumbprints he left on the letter, and after a short but intense manhunt, they had him in cuffs. The letter began with a rant about how easy it was to contaminate pill capsules, then talked about how potent cyanide is, even going as far as to call the poison powerful, beautiful, and quick. He eventually got to the point. He demanded Johnson & Johnson wire $1 million to a Chicago bank account if they wanted the killings to stop. Well, 
The company had no intention of paying and immediately contacted authorities. On the surface, James seemed like the perfect suspect. He'd written a letter claiming to be the killer, he was from Chicago, and his record was filled with bright red flags. In 1978, he was accused of murdering one of his clients, Raymond West. The evidence was gruesome. Raymond had been dismembered by someone in his own home. Investigators believed the killer was James, but the jury thought otherwise and acquitted him of all charges. The police had obtained some evidence illegally, meaning prosecutors couldn't use it in court. After the acquittal, James and his wife started an import business that shipped pill-making machines to India. Now, the business didn't last long, and they found themselves in a tight financial spot. In 1981, police found evidence showing that James had applied for credit cards using fake addresses and fake applications, forcing him to abandon his home and flee to Chicago with his wife in early September 1982, just a few weeks before people started dropping dead. In New York, he and his wife were using a variety of fake names while they maintained a relatively low profile. Until he sent the letter, that is. James says he didn't actually want to extort Johnson & Johnson. Instead, he wanted them to send the money to an account owned by his wife's former boss in an act of revenge. His testimony also included some other strange details. For example, he described in detail how the killer might have committed the murders. He even drew pictures to explain how someone could use a unique method to open Tylenol capsules, lace them with cyanide, and then put the bottles back on the pharmacy shelves. Sounds like he was the guy, right? Well, maybe. But as he explained it, he could tell you how Julius Caesar was killed too, but that didn't mean he did it. Despite his very suspicious-sounding testimony and the letter, authorities didn't have evidence linking James to the crime. While he couldn't be tried for the Tylenol murders, he was definitely guilty of trying to extort Johnson & Johnson. Prosecutors used his testimony and fingerprints to prove that he sent the letter and attempted to extort the company's money. He was found guilty and served about 13 years behind bars. After he was released, he moved to the Boston area where his legal troubles continued. In 2004, he was charged with kidnapping and sexually assaulting a woman. Apparently, according to the Boston Herald, he was teaching her website design, but then allegedly accused her of, quote, stealing website space. As punishment, he allegedly kept her tied to his bed for 24 hours, and at one point, he allegedly told her he was going to wrap her up in a plastic bag, take her to the forest, and let the animals eat her, according to court records published by the Herald. The charges were eventually dropped after the woman refused to testify. Since then, he's been under the radar writing novels. One in particular stands out. It's called Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. And if that seems a little too on the nose, wait until you hear what it's about. According to the Amazon description, a rogue government employee triggers earthquakes threatening to level a Midwestern city. Meanwhile, underground water supplies have been poisoned and people are dying. So... Yeah. Because of his track record, James has been dubbed the unofficial Tylenol Killer, a nickname he despises. He insists he's not the guy. And if he isn't the guy, then who is? There were a few other suspects who emerged briefly. The FBI even tried collecting DNA evidence from the Unabomber who famously terrorized the Chicago area a couple of years earlier. 
And in a last-ditch effort to close the case, they tried catching James again in 2009 by raiding his home for DNA evidence, but they still couldn't find anything to incriminate him. To this day, no one is sure who committed the Chicago Tylenol murders. Fortunately, there is some good news about the case, something most people don't even know about. A few days after the murders, Johnson & Johnson announced that they placed a protective seal on their Tylenol bottles. The fear of copycats was well-deserved. Several copycat killers throughout the 80s and early 90s attempted to lace over-the-counter pill capsules with contaminants like cyanide and rat poison. To combat the copycats, other pharmaceutical companies also started putting protective seals on their over-the-counter pill bottles. Over time, every ingestible product had a security seal on it, and pill poisoning stopped altogether. Today, we don't even think about why we pull off the bottle seal. We just do it. Without the Tylenol murders, over-the-counter medications would have been exposed for many more years and perhaps more susceptible to even deadlier poisonings than the ones that terrorized Chicago in 1982. And that's your recap, but don't go away. There's plenty more recaps to listen to, and if you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would take a second to subscribe and give this show a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care.